God continued his assault of the gods and religious faith of Egypt by overrunning Egypt with gnats. The Hebrew word for these insects was cain, a broad term for small biting insect pests, which included not only gnats, but also lice, and possibly what we call today mosquitoes. The recollection continues in Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Extend your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may turn into gnats, into Cain, through all the land of Egypt. They did so, and Aaron extended his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on every person and animal. All the dust of the earth turned into gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. The soothsayer priests tried with their secret art to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on every person and animal. Then the soothsayer priest said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. The Egyptian goddess most closely associated with small biting insects, particularly those found in and near swamps, was Wajet. Richard Wilkinson has described Wajet in the following way. The cobra goddess Wajet was associated with the Nile Delta region from early times and became the tutelary deity of Lower Egypt in juxtaposition to her counterpart, the vulture goddess Nekbet of Upper Egypt. Her name means the green one, which may refer to the natural color of the serpent or perhaps to the verdant Delta region which she inhabited. In the cycle of myths relating to Horus as represented in the temple of Hathor at Dendera, Wajet acts as the young god's nurse when he is raised in the delta site of Chemis, giving her an association with Isis, who usually took this role. In the West today, we often think of biting insects as nuisances. However, in ancient Egypt, they were also seen as a form of protection. Since biting insects chase us away from certain outdoor places like swamps, they could easily be seen as protecting those places. Perhaps it's not surprising that the ancient Egyptians associated one of the protective goddesses with insects of this sort. As we continue to remind ourselves, idols are symbolic representations of the realities that we allow to shape our lives and to which we pay homage to increase our control over them. For the ancient Egyptians, biting insects were evidence of the activities of one of the goddesses of protection. When God brought forth biting insects from the dust of the earth, God was turning Pharaoh's protection upon his own people. In so doing, God was inviting the Egyptians to call upon their protective deity to save them from God's curse. And on this occasion, something as yet unprecedented occurred. Though the Egyptian soothsayer priests were able to duplicate the first two plagues, this plague they could not duplicate. They were unable to call forth biting insects from the dust. This reality terrified the priests, and they tried to persuade Pharaoh of the nature of their dilemma. But still, Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go. Biting insects represented protection for the Egyptians, particularly the protection of the Pharaoh. But again, God had revealed to the Israelites that the protection of kings and rulers was his purview alone. As the prophet Daniel would later declare in Daniel chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, May the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the periods. He removes kings and appoints kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to people of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. The Egyptians had failed both to recognize God and to give him thanks for the establishment and protection of Egypt. Instead, they had taken these honors and given credit for them to their gods. For the protection of Egypt's rulers, 
they had honored the goddess Wajet. Given that the Egyptians assumed Wajet controlled biting insects along with her close relationship with the god Horus and with the pharaoh, it's perhaps not surprising that pharaoh's servants feared the plague more than did he. After all, biting insects have a more poignant effect on those working outdoors and living in unsecured dwellings than they do on those with appropriate shelter. It's likely that Pharaoh was less affected by this plague than he was the previous two, and given its association with the goddess who, in part, was thought to protect the Pharaoh, his unrelenting response seems understandable. Even so, by sending a plague of biting insects on the Egyptian people, God was driving a wedge between the people of Egypt and their ruling class. The goddess, thought to protect the pharaoh, was not protecting the people. Even pharaoh's soothsayer priest tried to persuade him to consider Moses' demand, but to no avail. Which god of the West is a god of protection? The god of religion is one such idol. I'll do my best to explain. When God revealed to Abraham that he was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he welcomed Abraham into a negotiation of sorts. The book of Genesis recounts the exchange in Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 22. The scriptures say this, Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham approached and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous people within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike? Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the entire place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am only dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the entire city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the forty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the twenty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Ten righteous people would have moved God to spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but ten righteous people were not to be found. This narrative is most most likely the origin of the Jewish requirement of the minyan. A minyan is a group of ten. Consequently, the formation of a synagogue requires a minyan, ten men. However, if you were to think of this story from a less honorable perspective, a different lesson can be drawn from it. The narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah also suggests that it only takes ten righteous people for a city to be spared. If you are a person intent on creating a city filled with wickedness, but you want to appease the God of Abraham who might judge your depravity, then part of your city planning must include a place for the righteous to gather. Did any in Israel ever conceive of such an interpretation of the lack of ten righteous persons in Sodom and Gomorrah? It would seem that some did. Many centuries later, God would declare the following through the prophet Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful, 
and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and eliminate from it both human and animal life. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only save themselves, declares the Lord God. If I were to cause vicious animals to pass through the land and they depopulated it, and it became so desolate that no one would pass through it because of the animals, though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not save either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be saved, but the country would be desolate. Or if I were to bring a sword on that country and say a sword is to pass through the country and I eliminated human and animal life from it, even though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not save either their sons or their daughters, but they alone would be saved. Or if I were to send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath on it in blood to eliminate man and animal from it, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in, the, in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not save either their son or their daughter. They would save only themselves by their righteousness. The idea that the presence of a small number of righteous persons might dissuade God from acting against the city was apparently still assumed in the days of Ezekiel. Of course, three men, however righteous, are not ten. Perhaps a minyan, a quorum, would still move God to spare a city. This has long been the assumption of the West. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms are aware of God's chesed, that is, of God's steadfast loyalty, not only to what he has said, but also to what he has done. A place for worshippers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus, has long been made in the cultures and cities of the West. Perhaps we've told ourselves that we did this out of piety. Perhaps our ancestors had convinced themselves that they truly believed in this God and truly believed in the way of Jesus. I'm sure for some these convictions were truthful. But for the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, who the prophet Daniel had seen as behind the nations of Babylon, of Medo-Persia, of Greece, and of Rome, those same spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms that have continued to build in the West among the ruins of the Roman Empire, a place was made for religion to protect themselves from the judgment of God. They learned a valuable lesson from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They could not exile the faithful from their cities and hope to survive. So instead of persecuting the faithful, they made room at the table, even incentivizing the gathering of the righteous in their places of power. This is the place of religion in the West. Religion is a system designed to protect a nation from the judgment of God by systematizing and controlling the spiritual formation of its citizens into a form of godliness for most, in true piety for a significant enough number to stave off the action of God against them. In some places, the church has benefited from this unholy alliance, but in most places and seasons, the church has been corrupted by it. And this corruption is not recent. It was present in Jesus' day, even in the ancient Roman Empire, the lesson of Sodom and Gomorrah had been learned and applied. The Romans were exceedingly tolerant of the Jewish religion and of Jewish synagogues being established throughout their empire. Perhaps they even encouraged it. But this allowance came with a cost. When in Rome, one must do as the Romans did, and the values of Rome infected Judaism as well. Jesus spoke against this corruption on many occasions. One such lesson that has stood out to me in recent days can be found in the Gospel according to Mark, chapters 12, verse 38 through chapter 13, verse 2. The Gospel says this, And in his teaching he was saying, 
Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and like personal greetings in the marketplaces, and seats of honor in the synagogues, and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses, and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive all the more condemnation. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began watching how the people were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large amounts. And a poor widow came and put in two leptocoins, which amount to a quadrants. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Jesus' judgment here of the Jewish scribes echoes that of the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Woe to those who enact unjust statutes, and to those who constantly record harmful decisions, so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor among my people of their rights, so that widows may be their spoil, and that they may plunder the orphans. Now what will you do in the day of punishment, and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among those killed. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. Widows, orphans, and resident aliens were among the most vulnerable people both in ancient Israelite and in first century Jewish societies. The law of Moses legislated some protections for vulnerable people through leveret laws, gleaning laws, and general admonitions to grace, mercy, and hospitality. But still there were loopholes that in crafty hands could be used for exploitation. Jesus taught his disciples that the foundation of the Israelite people had become corrupted by this exploitive spirit. It's common in reflection on this passage to hold up the widow's faith as exemplary, and she was indeed a commendable person. After all, Jesus himself commended her faith. But given the larger context and mark in which the story has been situated, Mark does not seem to have included her story in order simply to praise her. Rather, Mark has intended us to receive Jesus' indictment of a system that would lead an impoverished widow to believe that God desired or even was willing to receive such a sacrifice from her. In truth, the law of Moses did not require the poor who were gleaning the fields or receiving alms either to tithe or to donate to the tabernacle or later to the temple. But somehow, because of the teachings of the religious leadership, and due in no small part to the religious practices of Rome and the other nations surrounding Israel throughout her history, this widow had come to believe that it would honor God to donate all she had to the temple treasury. One doesn't have to look too deeply into Christian religious institutions throughout the West to discover that this same corruption, which had permeated the religious establishments of the Roman Empire, continues in Christian communities today. Nowhere in the Christian scriptures does God suggest that a simple sacrifice of one's basic necessities is a means to gain God's favor or blessing. Nonetheless, the foundation of the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had become so corrupted in the days of Jesus that the very institution meant to aid people in the worship of and discipleship of God had come to exploit those with authentic and genuine faith, even to exploit the most vulnerable of Israel's people. I suspect that the reason that Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem immediately follows Jesus' judgment against the Jewish leadership for devouring widows' houses 
and the story of the exorbitant gift of a widow to the temple treasury, is because Jesus would not marvel at the beauty of a religious structure built at this cost. In the days of Martin Luther, the Roman Catholic Church raised money for the building of St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome similarly. The Church sold indulgences by which it was claimed dead relatives' time in purgatory could be reduced. Martin Luther wrote the following to Pope Leo X in an essay entitled The Freedom of a Christian. Luther said, As you well know, there has been flowing from Rome these many years, like a flood covering the world, nothing but a devastation of men's bodies and souls and possessions, the worst examples of the worst of all things. All this is clearer than day to all, and the Roman Church, once the holiest of all, has become the most licentious den of thieves, the most shameless of all brothels, the kingdom of sin, death, and hell. It is so bad that even Antichrist himself, if he should come, could think of nothing to add to its wickedness. And today as well, such exploitation remains. It's outside of our purpose to go through all the gratuitousness of contemporary examples, but from sexual assaults, to financial malfeasance, to exploitative fundraising tactics, to abusive and unchristlike leadership practices, the Church continues to reflect its unholy alliance with worldly powers and the worldly mind. This exploitation is effective because of a subtle and often intentional shift from religion as a tool of discipleship to religion as a means to God. Religion itself has become a god of the West. It is worshipped often as a substitute for or an idolatrous manifestation of God on earth, particularly by those who have conflated the institutional church with God. As the Pope of Luther's day claimed to be the vicar of Christ on earth, so too for many, Religion, whether in the form of the institutional church or in the form of traditions and rituals handed down, has become conflated with God and worshipped in his name. For many Christians today, if one wishes to serve God, one must serve him either through the rituals handed down by the tradition of the church or through acts of service done to or through the institutional church. To serve the church is to serve God. To inhabit ancient Christian rituals is to worship God. This is the God of religion and God is assaulting it now. Religion was intended by God to be a tool, not a tunnel. It's a guide, not a doorway. The Apostle Paul spoke of the civic, social, ritual, and religious requirements of the Law of Moses in the following way. This is Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Why the law then? It was added on account of the violations, having been ordered through angels at the hand of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, but God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Far from it. For if a law had been given that was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has confined everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being confined for the faith that was destined to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our guardian to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. When Paul in these verses used the term law, he was not referring to rules and regulations in general, nor was he referring to laws of local communities or nations. By law, Paul meant the law of Moses, the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Paul has described the law of Sinai as a custodian, or a guardian, which was put in place to protect the people of Israel from moral and ethical deterioration until the coming of Jesus. 
Understood in this way, the religion of Israel was not to be conflated with God. The religion of Israel was intended both as a type of system of restraint and a mode of discipleship and education, safeguarding Israel and preparing the people of God for the coming of Jesus. The point of religion is to point us to Jesus. To say it another way, religion is not the gate into the sheep pen of God, nor is the institutional church the sheep pen itself. Jesus is both the shepherd and the gate, and only God can define the sheep pen, the place designated as holy, in Hebrew, the mikdash. True followers of Jesus define the space of the temple now, as Peter has taught us in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by people, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The same confession can be found in the writings of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 16 to 17 and in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 to 22. But let's not forget that this god of religion is akin to Wajet, goddess of Egypt. As Wajet was said to protect the Pharaoh, religion is a protection for the powerful. For the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, it protects their cities from the judgment of God by allowing space for righteous people to live in their midst. For Christians, religion is a way to guarantee that their particular version of Christianity will endure through time by dogmatizing, systematizing, and safeguarding the catechesis of the future. Through religion, the interpretation of one generation can become the interpretation of future generations. The difficulty, of course, is that in the case of error or corruption, it's easier to add to a system than it is to correct one fundamentally. The God of religion is a God of protection, a God of legacy, of influence, and of power. As God displayed his sovereignty over the goddess who supposedly protected Pharaoh's enduring dominance over Egypt, so God is now displaying his sovereignty over the Western God of religion, which is akin in the secular realm to the God of education. As Jesus once upturned the tables in the temple in Jerusalem, so God is upturning the tables both of the Christian religion and of secular educational institutions again. The revelation of abuses, illegality, worldliness, and all manner of ungodliness in the church and in the academy is not random. God has been empowering whistleblowers, emboldening victims, revealing ignorance, uncovering the manipulation of students and disciples by those in power, as well as preserving evidence of all of these activities. These are the biting insects among us, and God has only just begun. The words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, are being fulfilled again in our time. We hear this in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he, Jesus, began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Both religious and educational institutions exist to preserve the discoveries, innovations, values, and systems of those who lead them by indoctrinating and catechizing the next generation. There is nothing inherently wrong with this project if that is what is being passed down is done so in recognition of God and submission to Him. But in both the Church and in the academies of the West, what is being discipled into the future, 
departed long ago from the testimony of God and the words he sent into the world through his prophets and apostles. God is eroding the foundations of both institutions in these days, exposing the diverse corruptions at the hearts of each. In the days of Moses, God sent biting insects upon the Egyptians. Today, God is allowing both the church and the academies of the West to reap what has been sown. In the words of the Apostle Paul to the Christians of Galatia, in Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, a passage we've already read and will probably return to again before this series is over. Paul wrote, The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. What are true followers of God, therefore, to do? Well, Paul continued in Galatians chapter 6, now in verse 9, in the following way. Let's not become discouraged in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. There is nothing that followers of Jesus can do to stop God's assault of these twin gods of religion and education. We must only continue to live as Jesus lived, doing good to all people and attending ourselves to the teachings of God's prophets and apostles as they have been preserved in the Christian scriptures. There's no danger to us of being educated, either religiously or academically, provided that we submit all that we learn to the lordship and teachings of Jesus. And how did Jesus teach us to respond to religious and academic teachers who were not living in submission to God? Jesus' exhortation to us can be found in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, whatever they tell you, do and comply with it all, but do not do as they do, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as their finger. And they do all their deeds to be noticed by other people, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the seats of honor in the synagogues and personal greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by the people. But as for you, do not be called rabbi, for only one is your teacher, and you are all brothers and sisters. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for only one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for only one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest of you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Heed these teachings of Jesus in these days, true followers of God, as we witness the Lord uncovering the follies of the wise, the corruption of learned, and the wickedness of institutions that should have preserved the knowledge of God in the world, but instead preserved only human ideas, discoveries, and deeds. The God of religion, and in its secular guise of education, is under assault. Bear witness, children of God, and learn from Jesus in these days.